This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. My main thought was, and it's a thought I often have at the library, which is, this is embarrassing. <laughs> because I will go into the library and I will walk out of there with a number of books that I am never going to read all those books. It is not even in the mm. realm of possibility. This is feeling uncomfortably familiar. <laughs> Hey readers, I'm Ann Bogle, and this is What Should I Read Next, episode 139. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? We don't get bossy on this show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. This week, I'm chatting with Eric Zimmer, whose voice won't be unfamiliar to you if you've been listening for a while. Eric hosts the podcast, The One You Feed, and that means it is his actual job to interview thoughtful people, and a lot of them are book people, who have big ideas about how to make a conscious, creative effort toward a life worth living. You'll hear me on his show in the near future, and to make sure you don't miss it, I recommend signing up for our free weekly newsletter. Do that at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash newsletter. I'll tell you about it as soon as it's live. And you can also listen to Eric's show right now, wherever you get your podcasts, or visit the show on the web at oneufeed.net. Well, about the books. One of Eric's favorites that we talk about today is totally surprising. If you have kids, it might be on their bookshelf right now. But as Eric explains, it fits beautifully into his bookshelf of introspective titles. One of Eric's favorites filled my heart with joy. And when you hear what it is, you will absolutely know the book I'm talking about. And speaking of those bookshelves, Eric has a habit of snooping, which I can certainly relate to. And we talk about it, of course. There's so much good stuff in today's episode. Let's get to it. Eric, welcome to the show. Hi, Anne. Thanks for having me on. I'm glad to be here. Something that I love about your show is that you talk to a whole lot of people who write books that I have really loved. I love to hear how the stories and nonfiction works I love are put together. So I really enjoy that behind the scenes peek. Yeah, I love it too. It's part of the reason I started the show was I just thought, what could be more fun than than talking to these people about their, their ideas and their thinking? And you get to ask all your nosy questions. Yep. Speaking of professional benefits, I've been really curious for a long time how your reading life is influenced by the thinking behind your podcast. Your podcast is called The One You Feed, and that title comes from a parable. I have so many questions about how the idea behind that parable affects what you choose to read and how you do or don't uh, consciously apply it in your life. So could you tell our listeners about The Two Wolves? Sure. It's a parable of unknown origin. It's an old story. In it, there is a grandfather who's talking with his grandson. He says, in life, there are two wolves inside of us that are always at battle. One is a good wolf, which represents things like kindness and bravery and love. And the other is a bad wolf, which represents things like greed and hatred and fear. And the grandson stops and thinks about it for a second. And he looks up at his grandfather and he says, well, grandfather, which wolf wins? And the grandfather says, the one you feed. That's the parable. Something that really informs 
everything I do. At first, it started kind of accidentally back in 2011 when I started blogging, and then eventually I could articulate, we really want to help our listeners have a better life through the books they read. We really try to help people, readers, get more out of their reading lives because I firmly believe that um, reading does great things for you. If you look at the literature and you want to see like the scientific basis, reading builds empathy and reading builds understanding and reading is good for your brain health. But in a more fundamental, like let's make this sound exciting way, reading makes your life better because it lets you go on adventures and it lets you imagine what it's like to be a different person in a different place. And it makes you a more interesting, loving, kind, generous, world enhancing human being. How's that for a bunch of over the top descriptors all at once? <laughs> it's good. But we're talking about books, so we get excited. Yes. Your podcast is about deliberately choosing to feed the good wolf. And I would like to think that this has implications for what you choose to read and what you do with that information after. You know, how the podcast interacts with my reading life, the most straightforward way is that I do an interview a week and I am very dedicated to knowing my guests' work before they come on. So most always it is an author of some sort, whether they're a psychologist, a scientist, a spiritual teacher, a psychologist, a thought leader of some sort or other. Occasionally I will have musicians, but I usually have them on because they've got some body of work that points towards some lessons about how to live a better life. So that's kind of the criteria by which I choose. And so the main way that it affects me is since I have to read a book, at least one book every week for the show, I have less time to do what I would consider strictly pleasure reading. Now, mm -hmm. I find any kind of reading to be pleasurable. But once for me, reading became part of my, um, I'll say, job description, it didn't take the joy out of it. It just changed what I thought of as pleasure reading versus reading that I'm doing for the show. So for me, pleasure reading is, is much more of a fiction kind of thing. And that can range from, you know, deeper literary fiction to I have a weakness for detective novels of certain stripes. So, you know, if I'm really looking for like total shut off, I just need to turn the brain off for a while you know, I'll go to, you know, more of a detective novel type thing. And then when I'm a little bit sort of more emotionally active or intelligent literary fiction that, that talks about the human condition in a way that I find illuminating and does all the things that you mentioned. The people that I have on the show are usually, it's pretty prescriptive, right? Mm -hmm. Again, it's people who've studied the science or, you know, the science or the art of living a better life. And so they've got some ideas some prescriptions, whereas I think fiction helps us to do that, but in a completely different way. And so I like to have both. I just get less of the fiction now than I used to. So what do the rhythms of your reading life look like right now? So you spend a lot of time reading the kind of books that have the more practical, actionable, step-by-step, -step, let's implement this wisdom. I read pretty much every night before bed, but it's not really like a, I'm going to climb in bed and read for three minutes before I turn off the light. You know, it's a big part of what I do with a lot of evenings. Depending on life circumstances and how much I have to read for the upcoming guest, you know, did they write a 200-page book or a 600-page book? will dictate how much I fill in around that. Or if I'm having some time to do some pleasurable reading, I'll probably do that any opportunity that shows up. Probably my favorite discretionary activity to do, although playing guitar is close second. 
So do you have a guitar frame of mind and a fiction frame of mind? You've already said that you don't have as much time to read fiction as you'd like. And I'm wondering how you balance those two twin artistic pursuits. That's a great question. I have never thought of it, but I guess I must have some degree of something that triggers me to do one or the other. Oftentimes it's just sort of routine. Like for whatever reason, lately I've been playing guitar every night for, you know, probably 20 to 30 minutes. And so I'm just kind of in that rhythm and it's, it's really, I'm enjoying it a lot. And then there's other periods where, you know, if I picked up, you know, say Kristen Hanna's Great Alone tonight and didn't read it all in one sitting, I would probably spend the next couple of nights when I was playing guitar reading because I was way into that book. So I think it's mm -hmm. pretty variable. I don't think there's any real, there's no real rhyme or reason to it except the combination of environment and mood, I suppose. Eric, how do you decide what you're going to read? How do books end up on your radar? I think they end up on my radar a few different ways. One is that for the work part of the show, I'm always kind of just looking. You know, I go to a bookstore and I'm going to browse the psychology, spirituality, you know, um, science sections. You know, I'm going to browse those and go, oh, that looks interesting. I'll put that person on my list or that looks interesting. So I find things that way. I'm in a position that I never thought I would be in. And it's truly wonderful, which that books just show up at my house most every day. <laughs> <laughs> you know, some of them I love. A lot of them I'm like, why did they think that this would be a guest? You know, clearly they paid no attention to what we do. But nonetheless, books show up. And then, you know, I spend some time on Twitter and I think I gravitate towards literary ones. I use Goodreads. Whenever I see an, uh, something about a book, I will usually follow up on it because I'll be like, well, what is that? It's like if I walk into your house and you've got a bookshelf behind you, I'm going to have a very difficult time having the conversation with you until <laughs> I can go review the bookshelf. It's going to be on my mind while we're talking. Like, what all's back there? Yeah. Carry that out into the way I move through the world. And it's like, oh, there's a sliver of a book over in the corner there. Let me go see what that is. The way I decide for the show is kind of backwards, but I won't read a book for a guest until that guest has agreed to come on the show. 99 times out of 100 works fine. I've got a pretty good radar for, okay, that's a topic I want. The person seems credible. I can see a couple minutes of their YouTube video. They can put a sentence together. But I just don't have the luxury of doing it the other way around, which is let me read 100 books to get 25 guests. I just can't do it that way. So I do it the opposite of that. Who's coming on the show is who drives the, the reading list. Luckily, I decide who comes on the show. So that drives my reading list in that regard. Did you read as much before you had a podcast where you talk about books so often? Not as much, no, but I've always been a pretty avid reader. So, Were you one of those kids who were reading under the covers with a flashlight at 2 a.m.? I think I learned to read very early and did it constantly from as early on as I can. Certainly way before I can remember the stories from my parents is, you know, I read a lot. And I bet if we went and could get my elementary school library checkout record, we'd go, wow, all right, that was, you know, <laughs> that was aggressive. Do you ever wish you could get your hands on your library checkout oh. record from your grade school days? I would love to see that. They finally at my library have implemented that. You can see what you have checked out, but that's only in the last couple of years. Yes, it drives me nuts that I wish I could see the whole history. Wait, you can see your history over years? Well, it depends on what library you are. Mine started doing it maybe backwards about a year or two years. I would like to hear about the moments when you stood there with your printout or at the computer screen and were scrolling and scrolling. <laughs> Do you remember what that was like? My main thought was, and it's a thought I often have at the library, which is, this is embarrassing. <laughs> because I will go into the library and I will walk out of there with a number of books that I am never going to read all those books. It is not even in the realm of possibility. And yet, I'll bring 30 of them home 
and I'll read one or two of them and then I'll take 20 of them back and probably pay fines on them. And I figure mm. money to a good cause. Mm, this is feeling uncomfortably familiar. Yeah. Yeah. I try, <laughs> I try to keep it mostly reasonable, but every once in a while I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to go take everything I want. I'm just in that mood. And you know what? That's why this thing's here. So in looking at that printout, what I see is lots of things checked out, far less of them actually read. I often agonize perhaps way longer than I need to, but I'm like, well, all right, I've got a window. I'm going to get to read a book. What's it going to be? And so now suddenly it's a, a decision that's fraught with all kinds of, of heaviness that it might not normally be if I was like, oh, I'm going to read three of these this week. I'm like, I might get to read one of these this month maybe, or two of these this month. I've started to use Goodreads. I love it because I can keep track of what I read and what I want to read. And so that's often what I'll do if I'm like, all right, I've got a little bit of time. If I haven't just read an article about a book I should get, I'll go to Goodreads and take a look. I really try pretty regularly to wander into an independent bookstore and purchase a book there. And so that often will drive what I read, what's there and what I can get, just because I don't want them to go away. I've had too many of them go away and I personally can't save them, but I feel like if I'm going to complain that they're not there, I have to be doing my part to try and make sure they're there. So that's often how it'll happen. I've heard that you have some terrific indies in Columbus, Ohio. We have one that just opened up in a suburb called Bexley, which is really good. This one in Bexley is the first new, what I would consider sort of the modern independent bookstore, at least to mm -hmm. me, where it's this extremely well-curated collection. A lot of the others of um, used books, there was a great used bookstore near me that I loved that did just go out of business. What was that? They were called Acorn Books. I've been told I need to visit the book loft. Yeah, I'm not as, I hope no book loft people are listening. I'm not as, <laughs> I'm not as crazy about it, but it is a fun experience because in, I think it's just a big old house that's just got books crammed in kind of everywhere. So it could be like you were me in 60 years. Actually, you know what? I'm going to take that as a reminder to visit the book loft because I haven't been in a while. I should go check it out again. Ask your Columbus people when you talk to them what they are and send me the list. Maybe there's stuff I don't know about. Columbus Ites? Columbus? What are you? Um, I think a Columbusite would work or a Col Columbiacent. I don't know. <laughs> the Ohioans have sent me emails that said, you have to come visit Columbus. I haven't seen what all is there, but whenever I'm traveling or I want to know what bookstores in an area or when people ask me what bookstores are in an area, there's a great tool on IndieBound.org. It's an independent bookstore finder. You just type in your city or the zip code you're going to, and you can search within like 25 miles or even 200 miles. I'm going there for sure. That's the first thing I do. My girlfriend is probably like, boy, is this guy just a thrill to be around. We roll into a new, <laughs> we roll into a new city and I'm like, what well, can we do the bookstore? The bookstores and the coffee shops. Actually, she loves going to, so I don't get that. But I can imagine that reaction from a lot of people. Like, why do we have to go there? Like anything you want is right at your fingertips. But you're talking to readers, Eric. We're all like, what is that weird? <laughs> Seriously. Every time we visit a new city, we're looking for books and good coffee. I have the additional weird that I want to see if there's like a good place to, to meditate. I wouldn't even know how to look for that. Usually just look for what are the Buddhist temples in the area because that's usually where it happens or some sort of Buddhist-ist organization. There's, there's a ton of them. You go to a big city and you've got like 15 choices. It's one of those things that I do like to kind of see what's there. I, I go in phases with it. I haven't, I've been in Atlanta now for some personal reasons for about eight days and have not yet made that uh, search, but I have been to two bookstores. We know which one wins there. 
(laughs) (laughs) I love to hear what people seek out when they travel. Now, is that the kind of thing where you go to a service or do you drop in? It's usually a meditation session. I wouldn't call it Uh a service, although depending on what sort of Buddhist organization or quasi-Buddhist organization you wander into, it might be a service. But what it mostly is, is a bunch of people sit down, they might have some flowers or candles. They, somebody rings a bell. You sit and meditate for a certain period of time. They ring the bell and then you're done. Or, you know, there's some combination of sitting and walking meditation. But there's usually not a lot of like what I would think of as a church service where most of it is you being presented things. You know, mm-hmm. the sermon, the reading, the music. You're kind of in a structured place, but you're still doing your own kind of internal thing. But with the support of others, it seems to be easier. You know, meditation can be difficult to sit for longer periods of time because you get restless. And But if you're in a room full of people, it provides that sort of support of, you know, that sort of a accountability, like, well, I'm not going to stand up in the middle of this and walk out. So it can be helpful in that way. And it's just sort of a community, um, you know, being around Mm -hmm. people. It's like being around people who love books, I guess, you know, people who are similar. So you know that something really matters to you if you seek it out in a city that's not your own. I think that's a good rule of thumb. I actually went to a Buddhist temple for the first time just two days ago. Really? Which one? It's a Buddhist temple in Louisville. And actually they hosted the Dalai Lama when he was last in the United States. So I remember there was a lot of local news about it then, but I didn't have any personal connection to the temple. Uh, It used to be a Jehovah's Witness hall. So it looks like a Jehovah's Mm -hmm. Witness hall on the outside, except now the landscaping is beautiful. And they had just made a sand mandala. Oh, And I've never seen one of those in person before. And it was amazing. Those things are remarkable. And the the amazing part about it, at least, I don't know if they will there, but most of the time they build that thing. They spend who God knows how long building this beautiful picture with one grain of sand at a time, and then they destroy it. It's a remarkable like statement on the idea, the Buddhist idea of impermanence and and not being attached to things. Yeah, Louisville has something called the Festival of Faiths every yes. year that I am going to come to some year because a lot of people who I might like to be on the show often end up speaking there. I think it's an event I would enjoy. Well, holler and we'll meet at the bookstore. Perfect. It's a great festival. And yes, by now that mandala is destroyed. I didn't realize that they were destroyed. I roughly knew what a sand mandala was, but I had no idea that it took hundreds of hours to make. And then they would brush it away. Sometimes I think, oh, how much good does symbolism really do? Like that, I think, punched us all in the gut when we found out. They weren't going to like brush it into a dustpan. They do something ceremonial with the sand. They may send it home with people who were there when that ceremony happened. But still, that makes me take a really hard gulp and also feel ridiculous for thinking I don't really make anything when I make it out of words. (laughs) Exactly. At least those are preserved somewhere. But oh, it was beautiful. I mean, just the craftsmanship in them is amazing. Eric, I would love to hear more about what you're reading these days. Are you ready to get into the specifics? Yes. You know how this works. You're going to tell me three books you love, one book you don't, and what you've been reading lately, and we will talk about what you should read next. You ready to start with your favorites? I picked three different books. One is uh, Letters to a Young Poet. I guess it's nonfiction. It's the poet Rilke is answering letters to a fan of his who's asking for advice. And I just find it, it's just one of the most profound things I've ever read. It's just so beautiful. Is this the part where I tell everybody that I didn't ask you to choose that book? Because Rilke is the patron saint of what should I read next? Oh, 
Well, there we go. Well, in our first episode, I closed it out kind of on a whim. I thought, okay, we'll finish with some great quote about the reading life. And the one I shared that first week was, ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. And we all loved it. So it stuck. It's a good one to have. And that book, Letters to Young Poet, although to get particularly geeky here, I'm going to say you need the Stephen Mitchell translation. You know, I checked this out of the library several times. I read it and finally bought it when I was at, I think, Faulkner House Books in New Orleans when I was traveling last year because I finally made it to Faulkner House Books. I had to buy something. Yes. But my suitcase was packed because I was at a bookish trade show and I could barely get home when I needed. So I bought this slender, beautiful little edition of Letters to a Young Poet. And when we hang up, I will go see who translated it. They're probably all good. That's the one that I am particularly fond of and just the the resonance. And he, I've only had one in my life, favorite translator, <laughs> but he is it. Everything he does, I just think it just comes out beautiful and it flows and things that he does that are a little bit older don't feel so stilted and stodgy. He also did the Tao Te Ching, which is another uh, of my favorite books. And his translation just to me seems so much better than all the others. So about the Rilke, I think that many books read differently when you come back to them at different stages of your life. But I suspect that this is more true about this book than most. When did you first encounter this? I would agree with your analysis. I think I first encountered, I was probably pretty young. I was probably early 20s. But it's one of those things I've gone back to over and over again and find to be profoundly comforting at any time I read it. There's just something about the advice he gives this gentleman. It's it's less advice about writing poetry, although that's it kind of there's some of that that's in there, but it's really about just encouraging this young man who is so driven but worried and afraid and just not sure just to kind of if I had to put it in one one sense would be just to take it easy a little bit relax and and just live in the world that you're in just be with what's around you with what's happening you know the famous quote from that is to you know learn to love the questions themselves mm-hmm. like you would a mm-hmm. uh, a locked book until you can someday live your way into the answers so that's the line that's most often quoted but there's just that sort of thing all through it the young man is clearly a man of artistic temperament. Um, we might probably call him a highly sensitive person even, right? <laughs> and, and Rilke talks to him in a way that says, yeah, of course, it's okay. You know, you're fine the way you are. You're good. I just love it. Such a short little read. You can pick it up and read a paragraph, a page, but it's definitely one of the books I've come back to over and over. Live your way into the answer, I think it is. Yep. I love that line. I mean, I love that book. That makes me want to go pick it up immediately, unless it's not Stephen Mitchell, and then I might need another edition. Set it to fire if it's not. <laughs> well, it's really pretty. Let's not get carried away. I'm I'm kidding. But you might want to get the Stephen Mitchell translation and just look at it. It's, it's interesting to me, occasionally, there's only a couple of books I've cared enough to ever do that with, but it's kind of interesting to look at a couple of translations of something next to each other and go, wow, that's really, huh, that's a big, you know, they're saying that very differently. You know, I was a German minor in college. Oh, so you probably actually know something about that then. Well, I did 20 years ago. Yeah. Oh, about the comparing translations? Or just what goes into a translation. I just don't, it's something I've paid so little attention to, except in this one particular regard. It boggles my mind to think about what kind of skills you need to be amazing at that job. 
I am super curious. You know, now I wouldn't be sad if my edition wasn't the Stephen Mitchell translation because then I could have my nerdy afternoon. I could spread them out on the floor and compare and contrast. Maybe I'll get out the German to re- to see how much I've forgotten over the years. Wow. Or maybe that would just yeah. be too depressing well, for one afternoon. Yeah. That'd be a nice use of an afternoon, though. It could be a demoralizing afternoon. <laughs> If you're particularly attached to your German skills, yes. But if you're not, <laughs> treat them like the sand mandala and you'll be fine. Oh, nicely done. All right, tell me your next book isn't German. It's not. It's called The Brothers K by David oh. James Duncan. And it's not the brothers, I don't know how to say it, Kamazarov, the, the Dostoevsky novel. It's not that. It's a classic family saga. And there's something about it that... I just love to read. There's, I find it funny. I find it touching. I find it wise. It's my favorite example of like a great family saga novel. Is that the kind of thing you're drawn to? Sometimes, yes, for sure. I just read this for the first time a few years ago. And I think until the moment I actually opened the book, I assumed that the author was playing off Dostoevsky somehow, some way. I just, I didn't get it. I think he probably is only in that the the main, main characters are brothers. Although the father's a pretty main character, but there are brothers and the differences between the brothers, um, you know, is is one of the things that, that weaves through the book. So maybe in, in just the, the most light sense, he's also playing on the one of the main characters, the father, is a baseball pitcher, and you know he throws strikeouts, a K, you know, strikeout is a K, the brother's K. So I think he's got a couple different things working into that title there. Mm-hmm. So this is not a bad um, companion on the bookshelf to the Kristen Hannah. I'm just really thinking about uh, how Vietnam did terrible things for the men in that family. Yes. And then the rest of the family had to... Absolutely. Carry on. Had to live into the answers. Yes, absolutely. I think that's a great... Great comparison. And, and I would say that their, I don't know if I'd say their writing style is similar, but they, for me, evoke a similar sort of, um, compulsively readable. Um, you know, I, I think there's some humor in the work, him more so than her, maybe, but mm-hmm. it's very readable, but it's also very, I think, poignant, very touching. And also, I think your comparison there of kind of, um, the you know the Vietnam piece also, but just the concept of like what do children inherit from parents, whether that be genetic or like most good family saga books, that's a big piece of it. What do you get from your parents? Mm-hmm. I mean, you state it so plainly, but that is a really complicated question yes. in the Brothers K. Have you read anything else by him? I've heard great things about. Uh, is it called the River Y? It is but- called the River Y, and um. But I haven't read it. So I know I've started it, but I can't tell you if I finished it. So it clearly, <laughs> it clearly at the time did not resonate with me. Uh-huh. But I am pretty sure it's one of those things like for a long time, people were like, you would love Bob Dylan. You would love Bob Dylan. Everybody I knew whose taste I admired loved Bob Dylan, but it did nothing for me for whatever reason. And then one day the time was right and I listened and it opened up a whole world to me. I think the river Y probably has that capability. He's got another Mm -hmm. book. I don't know what it's called. It's not a fiction book. It's a book of essays, but I also Mm -hmm. found that to be just awesome. Um, but I do not know the title. So I will probably give it a try again at some point. Yeah, you're making me want to do the same. I didn't know about that about his nonfiction, so thank you for that. What rounds out your favorites list? Uh, the Complete Calvin and Hobbes. Nice choice. You know, I don't think those words have been spoken on this podcast yet in 100 
something episodes. Well, I'm glad to be the one to do it. As you and I were talking before, I was like, I could have probably spent the better part of a day trying to pick the right three books to put on this show because that's what, as readers, we love to do. And I was like, I, I'm not, I don't have time for that. I'm not going to do that. I kind of surveyed a couple of my bookshelves and just kind of went like, what do I really love here? Like, mm-hmm. and, and the complete Calvin and Hobbes was there. And I realized it is one of the, the books, so to speak, that consistently over a long period of time gives me a great deal of joy. And I also think in the way that we've talked about the other books being wise and pointing to things that are essential about the human condition and some of the foibles of being human, etc. I think Calvin Hobbes does that as well as lots of great literature. And it's just hysterical. (laughs) So when did you start reading these? How, How far back does it go? It goes back to 1994, which is probably close to when he quit, perhaps. I don't know when he quit, but it wasn't way after that. I was in recovery from a drug addiction, and I was living at a really crappy halfway house. So I had lots of time, and so I I don't know what prompted. I have no idea how I ended up with a Calvin and Hobbes book in my hands, but I just started reading, and I was just hooked. I was absolutely enamored by it. And so that's when it started. Over the years, I had a few of the different books. And then finally, uh, my girlfriend bought me the complete collection. It's like three big bound books. They're just beautiful. The other great use of Calvin that I have found, he makes the most frustrated, upset, disgusted faces of any any character <laughs> I have ever seen. And nothing, my girlfriend and I have this thing where when one of us is feeling a particular angry or frustrated or whatever, we'll send each other funny pictures of someone else who has that emotion. So Calvin is perfect for this. If you're ever just like, just beside yourself upset and you look at Calvin, you're like, that's exactly how I feel. And that is also hilarious. So for whatever reason, for me, that has been an additional add-on of Calvin that has been a very therapeutic to me is to look at him and his most frustrated when I feel very frustrated and it makes me laugh. Okay, Eric, funny thing. I just finished rereading for like the third or fourth time Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel. Have you read this? I have not. Ooh, I think you might like it. But Calvin and Hobbes makes an appearance in the book. Oh. So this is an apocalyptic novel. 99.9% of the population died in the horrible Georgia flu 20 years ago. And now we're tracking this uh, family of sorts um, as they move forward and move through the landscape. A girl and her friend have this really quick conversation about Calvin and Hobbes. And she says, like, clearly, nostalgically, did you ever read Calvin and Hobbes? And she gives two paragraphs to saying how it captivated her when she was a kid. And she especially loved the Spaceman Spiff sequences. Just beautiful alien landscapes really spoke to her as a child. Interesting. Spaceman Spiff are beautifully drawn, but usually not my favorite ones. I do like them, though, and I do find they show his imagination so well and how, like, you know, you just see this little kid walking around and interior of his head is just so, so majestic. The things that he's turning his everyday life into, you know, my favorite ones are usually when Calvin is doing something that we know as humans is one of our weaknesses. And Hobbes is kind of exasperated (laughs) with him. 
those are usually my favorite ones because you have, you have a human doing what humans do, being overly materialistic or thinking something's really important that matters not at all. And then you have the animal with the like, boy, you guys are weird perspective. So I won't be able to reconstruct the whole thing. But one of my favorite ones is where Calvin, his mother is like, well, you know, things could be a lot worse. And Calvin will be like, but yeah, they could be a lot better too. <laughs> His habits of thought are what we all can fall into that we know like, boy, that's not a wise way to live. I think that when we look at something and we can laugh at it, we suspend judgment of it for a while. And so we can look at whatever the thing is, however awful or embarrassing or whatever the light on the human condition that's being shined, if there's humor with it, it stops our judging mind from rushing in. And I think it allows us to see it in a more clear and open way. Whereas normally when something about ourselves is shown to us, we don't like, we're very inclined almost unconsciously to rush in and explain why it's not that way, why we're not that way, or the examples of when we're not, or why it's not that bad, or how everybody does it, or whatever it is that the defense just is boom right there. I think humor when done right suspends that for just a short period of time that we can actually see it. And that's what I love about Calvin and Hobbes. Calvin is doing the exact opposite of things you would do if you wanted to be a happy human. And yet we can see it in Calvin and it's funny and Hobbes kind of is rolling his eyes at it. And for me, it allows me to see those things in myself without any sort of judgment. He also sounded uncannily like maybe the voices in my head on a day when I'm really tired and really hungry. So relatable. Yep. It sneaks in. It is the way that all of us tend to react sometimes. Okay, Eric. What's a book you don't love? This was really hard for me because I don't tend to read books I don't think I'm going to like or don't have good reason. So I very rarely pick up a book that I don't like. So what I sent you was The Secret, which I think, as you mentioned, might be kind of a cop out because who likes The Secret? <laughs> um, Except it sold millions, plural, of copies. Some of the thinking in The Secret, as somebody who's in the self-improvement space, so to speak, the self-help space, I, I dislike that word, but somebody that's in that space, that's kind of what I do. The book offends me on a few levels and I think is one of those books that can give the whole space kind of a bad name. So that's why I don't like it. I mean, it's writing. I don't know whether it's writing as good or bad. It's just that some of the basic concepts really great on me. Yeah. And I don't think offends is a word that you're just throwing around or that you tend to use a lot. I definitely have uh, suspicions, but I'd love to hear you articulate why. The core idea behind the secret is that you manifest your own reality and that by doing so, you know, that you're completely the architect of everything that happens in your life. And I have two real fundamental problems with that. One is it's just hideously self-obsessed. It's like, well, I got in a car wreck today because I needed to learn about being more responsible about blah, blah, blah. Someone might say something like that, which means that somewhere out there, the universe is going, well, I'm going to take Bob over there who's having a perfectly lovely day and I'm going to put him in a car wreck with you so that you can learn. It just strikes me as self-centered. And then the second thing is if you take that thinking to its logical extreme, it's, it's also equally hideous, which is to say if you are the manifestation of what happens in your life, I mean, as we've spoken, there's been a list of things that if we heard that they'd happened to a human would turn our stomach just in the time of this conversation. I have a very difficult time feeling like those people brought that on themselves. And, and again, I think the people who are talking about the secret might say, well, that's not quite what we mean. But if you follow that conclusion far enough, if you follow the logical outcropping of it, that's where you end up. And so I have a very, very difficult time with that. I think there are some key pieces of truth in it too, which is 
maybe why it partially frustrates me so much because I think some of the heart of the message is really right on. I do think we are the architect of a lot of our life, not necessarily what happens to us from the outside, but the way we see the world is probably far more relevant to our experience of the world than what happens to us. Again, there are outlying extremes to this. As a somewhat privileged upper middle class person who has time to talk about books all the time, clearly I'm not fighting for survival. Earlier this spring, I talked to Kristen and Joe Lenta from the Panoply podcast, By the Book, where they read and live by the rules of a self-help book for two weeks every so often and then record an episode about it. What a great idea. They hated the secret. No, I bet they did. <laughs> what, what, what was it that, let me I should be less flip. What was it that they hated? They're funny. It's a humor podcast. And yet they didn't feel it was healthy yeah. as people to, to enter into that frame of mind. That's a uh, part wishful thinking, part victimization of yourself, part putting your head in the sand. Yep. You know, self-help involves helping yourself and they didn't, they didn't think it was helpful. And I think they had a fundamental problem with the, hey, universe, make me rich assumption that this is what you should want out of your life. From every level of it, it's about me. What do I want? If there's anything that I feel like is a key teaching of a, of a spiritual nature is that one of the most destructive things you can do is only care about yourself. That's the surest way to be unhappy and unsatisfied and live a, a life that just isn't what you want is if it's all about what you want. So can we talk about what you want? What I want? Yeah. What do you want to be different in your reading life, Eric? I wish I had a little bit more time to read fiction. That's about the only request I would have. Otherwise, my reading life is wonderful. When we think about books for you to read, would you like fiction recommendations? Yes. Okay. I'm thinking that you sound like you keep those uh, nonfiction reading for work shelves, metaphorical or literal, pretty full. They're pretty full. Yeah. I mean, I've got, I've got a list of a hundred and some people I'd love to have on the show. So yeah, that's pretty stocked. Excellent. What are you reading right now? Well, I just finished your book. I just also simultaneously finished a book for another interview with an author, Judson Brewer, called The Craving Mind. It's about kind of how Ooh. our mind creates and perpetuates cravings, a meditator and a mindfulness teacher. And I just finished a book called The Second Life of Nick Mason, which is kind of, I wouldn't call it a detective story, but I'd call it a noir type story based in Chicago that was kind of fun. And I just started a book. It's basically stories about all the devious things that England did during World War II to help win the war. And I don't mean devious as in mean, but all the sort of subterfuge that they used to win the war. And it just looks like a fun kind of book about just all this kind of weird underground stuff that, you know, we usually don't know about that was critical to the war effort. Okay. Well, this will be fun. All right, Eric, here's what I'm seeing in your picks. You're not afraid of a big, meaty, complicated story. Nope. Long doesn't seem to scare you off. You like stuff with deep meaning that makes you think about life's questions. And you also love a good detective story, but we haven't really dug into that. So what are some of your favorites? What are you looking for when it comes to crime fiction? Are you able to articulate what it is about the genre that really appeals to you? You know, no, I don't know if I can. I can tell you the, the particular types, but I don't know that I know why. I love Raymond Chandler's work. I love there's something about the writing and the place and the feel of that original noir type fiction. I like the Harry Bosch novels by Michael Conley. And I yeah, don't know yeah, yeah. I don't know why, because I think Bosch is generally just kind of a jerk. <laughs> like he is. I just look at it all the time and I'm like, 
yours and everybody's life around you would be so much better if you just weren't such a jerk all the time. And yet he's completely compelling. Some of it is when I was young, this is not a great admission, but I had some of the beginnings of what might make a career criminal in me. Um, I engaged in less than ideal behavior and, you know, that stuff is gone, but it was a part of my life at one point. So there's something about that world that intrigues me that pulls me towards it. I, I have never done a deep analysis of what it is about it pulls me, but I like those. I love the Lawrence Block series of Matthew Scudder, mainly because Matthew Scudder was a recovering alcoholic. There's another one that I just started reading. I wrote a couple of them. I think the first one is called The First Rule of Ten by... Um, Gay Hendricks and somebody else. And it's a ex-Tibetan monk who's living in Los Angeles and becomes a private investigator. So I find that one fascinating too, because he's kind of that classic detective mentality, that sort of tough guy, do it by myself. And yet he's got this whole other life that calls to him and pulls on him. And I find it a real interesting way to flush out what that character is like. So those are the things I like and kind of what I like about him. But why is a mystery? All right. I have ideas for what you might enjoy reading next. Let's start with a mystery, which I didn't really see myself recommending to you based on your conversation, but then you said noir. Have you ever read anything by Laura Lippman? I don't think I have. Okay. She's a prolific crime writer. Um, she's written 20-something books. She's been writing for decades. She's won numerous genre awards for her crime novels. But her new book is really a departure. It came out in late February this year. And this is like Hitchcock movie meets the hard-boiled school of uh, detective fiction. Sounds perfect. Houses are blowing up and there's insurance fraud and, you know, like a, a handsome detective. It's just a really fun example of the genre, I think, and I think you might like it. It's called Sunburn. It's set in Baltimore. It starts with a young mother on a beach vacation in Delaware at her diner with her husband and her small child. And she says, you know what? I need a break. I've gotten too much sun. And then she takes off. <laughs> Pretty soon, a good-looking detective is off to find her. He suspects that there's more going on here than first appears, which is just that she's bored in her marriage, and he is right. So we very quickly get into this whodunit of there's money. Where did it come from? What is she trying to pull? Like she's playing some kind of long game, but what and how? It follows the beats of the crime genre, which lends that era of expectation that you mm -hmm. said you found comforting, but it's got a different kind of feel. And Littman is based in Baltimore herself, and she explicitly said that she was really inspired by James Cain, who wrote the classics, The Postman yes. Always Rings Twice and Double Indemnity. Those are terrific. Those are terrific. So anything written in that vein that like halfway succeeds is going to be a fun read. That is a very good pick. I was looking down your list and saying, oh, George Saunders would be perfect for you. So he wrote uh, most recently Lincoln and the Bardo. Have you read that yet? No, I tried. It's weird, right? I didn't try hard, um, but I tried and I was like, all right, this is ambitious and it's more ambitious than I feel. And so <laughs> I set it aside for another time. You know, sometimes that is the exact right thing to do. I want to go back one book in his publication history with you and talk about 10th of December. Here's why I really like it for you. First of all, he is a Buddhist. I'm not sure if this is something that you know uh, about him. I vaguely do know that. And not that we need to share someone's beliefs to appreciate their work, but I love it when a book is set in a place that I've been to, or when I know I have something in common with the author. And so I thought that might be a fun connection mm -hmm, for, for you. For sure. 
I like 10th of December because this is a short story collection. It won some impressive awards. I don't remember which ones. We'll put them in show notes. But he's telling short stories that are mundane human terribleness and truly human horribleness, but always with this really funny, like untamp-downable humorous element. The way you talked about Calvin and Hobbes makes me think that George Saunders would be really excellent to you and might like might be fun to go back with in that in mind. Because when you talked about how when something is funny, when it has that element of humor, it sneaks past our defenses because we suspend our judging mind and we're open to things in a way we wouldn't be otherwise. Well, that is here in every one of his stories. The few stories in the collection that read as fairly straightforward are totally transformed by the title, like Downtrodden Mary's Failed Campaign of Terror. <laughs> or he also has one called Victory Lap, which is not a happy-go-lucky kind of story. His approach to what he's trying to do and underlying assumptions about how there is pain and there is humor and they're happening in the same paragraph. Honestly, one of my very favorite types of writers or books is if, if they can make me, sometimes literally or, or close to, laugh and cry within pretty much the same page, I'm like, that is a masterwork. That's difficult to do all in the same movement. David Sedaris comes to mind, howlingly funny. Oh. And yet it's like, yikes, there's a lot of sting or sadness or something in that too. I will read him with that lens. I have a lot of respect for authors that can cover the whole range of human emotion. Yep, me too, for sure. It can be challenging to be funny, but to be funny and poignant at the same time is just so powerful. Yes. Well, with that in mind, for your third book, I'm thinking about Jhumpa Lahiri. Have you read anything by her? I can't remember. I feel like I did remember read one of her books, but one of my problems with reading is that I don't retain a ton of it. So you can just pretend that I haven't read any of it. So yeah, I mean, that's if the great thing. If you can't remember, I think that's enough to go on. Oh yeah, I mean, I can read the same book. I can watch the same movie sometimes. I'm like, oh, you know, I've seen Breaking Bad like three times. It surprises me every time. <laughs> I don't know if this is a human thing or a, a personal thing, but I find that I can remember how the story made me feel. Yes. I might not remember anything about what actually happened to make me feel that way. I think that is a great description of my process. Yes. I'll use that from now on instead of feeling bad about not remembering <laughs> anything. It's really more of an emotional thing with me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I'm thinking about The Lowland by Jhumpa Lahiri. It begins with two Indian boys sneaking over the wall of a fancy pants club for rich people. They are playing a prank, but it doesn't go like they expect. And those two boys handle what happens next in very different ways. And their reactions have ripple effects across generations around the world. I like this because there is great emotional complexity. She is all over the place. And I mean that in a good way. I mean, she's able to take you to many different emotional places over the course of the story. This is really a sweeping family saga in the spirit of the Brothers K, where you get to see relationships affects all the people involved in ways both large and obvious, but also really small and nuanced. These boys are just born like 15 months apart. They seem like they could be twins. They're mistaken for one another all the time. They're growing up in Calcutta, but they are very, very different from each other. So that interplay of what do you get from your family? What makes you who you are is very front and center here. One is more of a rebel. One is more of the, uh, you know, the good son, the dutiful son. And 
just for an extra dose of fun, there's a big dash of politics involved just to keep things extra tense if a family saga wasn't tense enough already. So I love how it spans generations. It goes around the world. There are big, big feelings, but it never gets out of control. This, I think, won some awards if you care about that kind of thing. Sounds like a great choice. Eric, of those three books, what do you think you'll read next? Probably Laura Lippman. It feels right for this time of year to me. Yep. That's kind of where my head is right now. For whatever reason, I was most recently in a bookstore. I really gravitated towards that sort of thing. So that's what appeals to me currently. Well, I cannot wait to hear what you think. Thanks for talking books with me today. Thank you. I've had a great time. Hey, readers, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Eric today. Head to the podcast site to share your recommendations for Eric and let him know there what you thought of my recommendations. That page is at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash 139, and we've listed all the titles we talked about today out for you on that page. Listen to Eric's podcast, The One You Feed, wherever you get your podcasts, and find the show on the web at oneufeed.net. That's one O-N-E, ufeed.net. While you're there, make sure you check out Eric's list of personal favorites by clicking the tab marked reading list or going straight there at oneufeed.net slash bookshelf. Next week, I'm chatting about immigration stories, reading identity, and books that take you around the world with my friend, Cindy Wong-Brandt. This episode will most likely take you around the world because Cindy's our first guest chatting with me from Taiwan. Here's a sneak peek. It's not so much a crisis. I'm still reading the books that I love and not reading the books that I don't love. But I guess sometimes I feel like I don't know where I belong. That same question that plagues me about other areas of my life. Like, I don't know if I am, you know, a literary reader or if I'm an airport novel reader or if I like YA because I like a little bit of all those things. And sometimes I get a little intimidated. And like when we went to the Festival of Faith and Writing, I did feel a little uncomfortable there because... I don't know. Some of it felt a little too highbrow for me. (laughs) (laughs) That's coming next Tuesday. Subscribe now so you don't miss next week's episode. And I have some news for you on that front. So Android now has its own podcast app. If you have an Android phone and have been listening on the web or on Spotify, you can now listen on the go with Google Podcasts. And if you have friends with Android phones who haven't started listening to podcasts because there hasn't been an easy way to play them, this would be a great time to help them get subscribed to What Should I Read Next? So subscribe now in Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And like I said, you can also listen on Spotify. If you're on Twitter, let me know there at Ann Bogle. That is Anne with an E, B as in books, O-G-E-L. Tag us on Instagram to share what you are reading. You can find me there at Ann Bogle and at What Should I Read Next. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Rilke said, ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone. <laughs>